Welcome everyone to another episode of Flourish FM. In this episode, Nick and I talk to Monica Parker about wonder and its powerful role in supporting human flourishing. Monica Parker is a world-renowned speaker, writer, and authority on the future of work, and she spent decades helping people discover how to lead and live wonderfully. She's the founder of global human analytics and change consultancy Hatch, whose clients include blue chip companies such as LinkedIn, Google, Potential, and Lego. And she challenges corporate systems to advocate for more meaningful work lives. In addition to her extensive advocacy work, she's also been an opera singer, museum exhibition designer, a policy director, a chamber of commerce CEO, and a homicide investigator defending death row inmates. At the start of this episode, we asked her about her rich and varied career and how this has led her to write on wonder. And she's the author of The Power of Wonder, The Extraordinary Emotion That Will Change the Way You Live, Learn and Lead, published last month. Nick, what were some of your highlights from this conversation? Yeah, a lot of times those subtitles to these books are grandiose and maybe overpromising, but in this case, I think Monaco's does not. And the conversation, I think, really reinforced that. There was so much connection between wonder and its various forms, curiosity, uh, however you want to talk about it. There are so many different connections to other conversations we've had. Episode one with Todd Cashton, episode three with Scott Barry Kaufman, two with Emily Esfahani Smith and, and meaning, right? When it comes to creativity, when it comes to gratitude, when it comes to Anna Lemke and sort of engaging in unpleasantness and mixed emotion and, and the psychologically rich life. There was just so much to chew on. And I love when there's a lot of synergy with other topics. And I can't think of an episode where we've had more synergy than this one with Monica. So any highlights for you? All of the above, but also I was really struck by her argument for wonder being the ultimate aim in life instead of happiness because of the dangers that aiming for happiness brings. She talks about the happiness trap, how aiming for happiness actually makes us less likely to achieve it. But that aiming for wonder has so many benefits for our well-being and we should perhaps consider that as something we should aim for as the ultimate aim in life. So we hope you love this episode as much as we do with Monica Parker on Wonder and its role in supporting human flourishing. Hi, guys. Hey, Monica. Hi, Monica. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. How are you? Doing well, thanks. Very well. Thank you. Love your glasses. Oh, thanks. It's very cold here. I feel I need to be sunny. Where are you? I am uh, in New York at the moment. I'm usually not based here, but I am here for a couple of months while I launch the book. So it's, it's colder than I'm used to. That's for sure. And how's the um, book launch going? So you've been you've been active on the podcast circuit, we see. Yeah, I have. No, it's going really well. Just found out at the end of last week that I made the bestseller list. So number three on Wall Street. Congratulations. Yeah, number nine on LA Times and something else on Publishers Weekly. So yeah, very exciting. That is extremely exciting, yeah. Yeah, so you posted that yesterday on Twitter. You saw I shared it. So congratulations, particularly on the, the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. That's Yeah, thank you. So yeah, we've really enjoyed diving into your book oh, great. Press. your publisher kindly got in touch with us as soon as this came out and it's a wonderful read <laughs> i didn't even mean to use that pun then it is a wonderful read though thank you so much for contributing this book to the world so monica thank you so much for joining us today I missed your hectic schedule promoting your fantastic new book the power of wonder you've led a remarkable life or a wonderful one if you'll excuse the pun <laughs> As we've enjoyed learning about throughout our research preparing for this episode, you've worked at high levels in a variety of diverse fields. So to list a few, you've been a professional opera singer, a museum exhibition designer, a policy director, a chamber of commerce CEO, and a homicide investigator investigating death row inmates. 
all in addition to your work as a world-renowned thought leader on the future of work. So could you please tell our listeners how your fascinating life journey brought you to doing research on wonder? Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's only when I can look at it retrospectively that I can see the red line that I've been following. But throughout my professional history, I've really been fascinated by existential change, big change that people go through, and really trying to understand how people manage it. So from working with people on death row, obviously, that's an existential change when the government is going to deprive you of your life. And then moving into working with people with disabilities and how families manage sort of coming to grips with that experience. And then even in the corporate world, losing your job, whole businesses shutting down or mergers and acquisitions, those are existential changes to the individual that's experiencing them. And what I found as I started trying as in my adult life more recently, trying to understand how it is that people manage change, I found that I realized that people who held their world in a sense of wonder were more able to withstand change. And so I wanted to explore that more deeply. And I really set out to write a book about change management. And in the end, I became so fascinated by wonder and realized that it connected all of these disparate elements of my personal history that four years later, I ended up writing a book on wonder instead of change management, which I think people will enjoy more than something that is a bit more dry about change. But really, it's it's just understanding that how people can withstand terrible, difficult times and, and how wonder can help them with that. Fantastic. So then, I mean, you know, this is a podcast about human flourishing. And we've noticed that much of your work seems directly connected with human flourishing. So you, you mentioned then managing existential change. So major transitions that a person might go through in life, like a career change or a new belief system, perhaps, or something. Do you see your work as connecting or supporting fostering human flourishing in certain ways? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that has always driven me is helping people find meaning and purpose in their life, whatever that life, however narrow or large that field is. And obviously meaning, purpose, engagement, how people can engage more deeply with their environments, with the people that are in their environments, their relationships with other people, and how they can find deeper purpose and meaning with those relationships. And those are all key elements of, of flourishing, going back to Marty Seligman's sort of analysis of the idea of, of flourishing. So Absolutely. It's it's about helping people find that depth of purpose, that depth of meaning, and connecting that into every element of their life. So I probably wouldn't have used that language prior to having this conversation. But once we started talking about that, absolutely, that is a that is a, a key element of, of what I hope people are able to find from both the book and the work that I do with them. Great. So let's let's start with a key term then. Yeah. Could you just conceptualize or define, if you will, wonder for us? Because there's there's a lot of different directions I think this could go. You already mentioned meaning and purpose. You mentioned kind of look retrospective at the red line of your life. It makes me think of that that Steve Jobs quote about trusting your gut and following your intuition and probably a Venn diagram between all these. But just if we if we put wonder in a silo, how would you define that? So wonder is interesting. It's a bit of a shapeshifter, right? So there's wonder as a noun and a verb. So we have the verb, which is sort of curiosity to wonder, to think about something, but then we can experience a wonder, which is really more of sort of the outcome of awe. 
So what I sought to do was to link these as what I call an emotional experience. So that's a series of emotions, of states and traits. So it starts with openness to experience. That's really the underpinning of being able to experience any of these elements of wonder. Then we move into curiosity. So curiosity being the verb to wonder about things. And that curiosity is a a deep epistemic curiosity as opposed to a surface curiosity. Then we get into absorption, which is where we narrow down our focus and become fully absorbed in the moment. That's really about the power of presence. And then we move from that into awe and awe being the self-transcendent experience that it really has a lot of the impact of wonder, a lot of the benefits that we see. And the way that I describe that as a way to remember it is we talk about watch, wander, whittle, wow, and woe. And the wow and woe are really the two elements of awe because for us to experience awe, it's the wow, the moment of this is something so big that it makes me feel like a smaller component part of a bigger system. And then the woe is the moment where our schema is actually changed by that experience where we, whoa, mind blown kind of attitude. And so it's this this cycle. And what I, I, I frequently call it a wonder cycle because it feels like this additive, almost upwardly cyclical experience that the more that we are open, then the more likely we are to experience curiosity, then the more likely we are to experience absorption and awe. Mm. And we do, we Mm. become more open, more curious. And so it's really, if we don't, if we're not rewarded with an awe moment every time, it's still worth experiencing the other elements of wonder because it helps us get closer and closer to that moment of self-transcendence. Well, that just triggered a bunch of interesting questions. So that's a really, really great description. Can we start with then maybe the the base of that upward spiral, which sounds a lot like broaden and build, by the way, Barb Frederick. Yes, work, uh, absolutely. That's a okay, huge cool, component cool. of it. Yeah. So so let's we'll we'll dig into that at some point. But at the base, you mentioned openness to experience. So I hear that. I hear big five. That sounds like personality disposition which then makes me think is wonder genetic or at least partly genetic or to what extent it is it malleable cultivatable those sorts of things yeah so absolutely uh, openness to experience is one of the big 5 one of the things that obviously i i appreciate about the big 5 is no one is devoid of openness we all have some degree of openness in our personalities but of course half of that is set by the time we're about 25 but that's one of the reasons why or half of that i should say is genetic and half being set by the time that we're 25 but that's one of the reasons why i believe that wonder in learning environments is so important because we can we have the ability to influence that other half of our personality when we're very young. But also one of the things that I want to impress upon people in the book is that just because if you do a big five personality assessment, you find you're a bit lower on openness, doesn't mean that you can't find wonder. You can, to some degree, move the needle on your own openness. You can increase it, but there's these in-between elements that we can, we do have a lot of influence over. Things like our need for cognitive closure, our need for cognition. Those are pieces that we can influence with time and with practice, and that can help us become more open. In addition, if we just simply engage in activities that open people would typically do that might feel a little bit uncomfortable for us, we can still receive some of the benefits of that openness. And then, of course, we get into curiosity and also awe. There is some belief that some of that is dispositional and some of that is about the state. So some of it may be trait and may be basically genetic as well. And and that's just the reality, I think, understanding where we are on those spectrums and then using our own experience and 
adding to that experience can help us leverage and make the maximum of whatever it is that we have as humans, either born or built into us over time. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah, so we've got the wonder cycle. So just to recap this, five stages to wonder. Openness to experience, what you call watch, watching, curiosity, wonder, absorption, whittle. And absorption here we're thinking of in terms of flow, if, if you like, or at least something important for flow, this state of absolute absorption and complete concentration on a challenging but doable task. And then all, which takes these two phases, vastness, which you also call wow, and accommodation, which is woe. Yeah. And within curiosity, you also distinguish between shallow and deep curiosity. Mm. Could you please talk us? Yeah, absolutely. So the way that I describe shallow curiosity is sort of, and and I feel like I have to say, because for those that are the real nerds around this, this is just me trying to encapsulate a lot of different types of approaches to curiosity. You guys, I'm sure know that there are at least half a dozen assessments of how we can analyze curiosity, but most of them do have at least two sort of channels to it. And they tend to look at them as as two different or even as many as five or six different ways of of viewing curiosity. And so the shallow curiosity is this scattershot type of curiosity. It's the type of curiosity that maybe is a Google search to settle a bet. That's the, oh, I'll find that answer. And that's sort of like a, a rock skipping across a pond. It is, while there's a satisfaction to it, it makes our brains feel good. It doesn't really get us into the depth, into the meaning. We, you mentioned meaning in the very beginning, that epistemic, the, the meaningful curiosity. It doesn't help us connect the dots as deeply. It's really almost about finding the single right answer and being satisfied with closing that loop to say, okay, I found the answer and now it's done. As opposed to deep curiosity, which is curiosity for curiosity's sake. It's for the enjoyment of seeking that information. People who have that deep curiosity tend to be lower in need for cognitive closure, higher in need for cognition, meaning that people aren't necessarily seeking the single right answer. They like nuance. They like exploration for exploration's sake, and then using that as a mechanism to connect dots in unexpected ways. And so while surface curiosity serves its purpose, it's not necessarily what gets us closer to wonder. And so when I talk about deep curiosity, it's what maybe Berline would have called epistemic curiosity. It's what others look at from a point of view of curiosity that has some degree of meaning. So it's interesting when I was starting to draft my dissertation, or at least sort of the, the proposal for the dissertation, I, I had to dig into a lot of the research on interest. And what you just described sounded like, yeah, I see you shaking your head there, levels of interest. And I can't remember the four subtypes anymore. This was a decade ago, but it was essentially like, eh, kind of novel interest. Like this at least grabs my attention, strokes that dopamine cord a little bit. Then it turns into situated interest, sustained interest. Is that what I hear you describing? Yeah, to some degree. And again, I mean, there's so many different ones. And that's why I thought for people who are not immersed in this, it's easiest just to say surface and deep. But absolutely, that plays a role into it. Lowenstein, you can see there's a lot of different thinking around curiosity that tends to say there's this kind that is scratches an itch and feels good. And then there's the kind that is much more of the thinker, you know, and so that's what we're we're seeking this the type of curiosity that allows us to really fall down that rabbit hole. Because if we don't fall down that rabbit hole, we can't become then absorbed. And so really, that's a root into that absorption. If it's just these little henpecking different pieces of, of information, then it doesn't allow us to get into that presence of, of absorption. 
that was going to be my next question is like, is there a sequence at the risk of oversimplifying this? You already pointed out, like, there's probably a lot more nuance here than we have time to get into. But it seems to me or it seems logical that you would start with that shallow curiosity. It might morph into deep curiosity and that would open itself up to these flow states and sort of total absorption, transient hypofrontality and all the way even to really, really deep, meaningful transcendental experiences. Is that sort of a a pathway that you commonly see in the research? Yeah. And I would say, but sometimes I think that, and what I, I wonder and what I've been sort of exploring is I think that there are, again, going back to personality types and also just the way that our brains are formed over time, that there's some people that might be much more naturally comfortable with just the surface curiosity and may never actually evolve mm. into, it may not without some encouraging or pressure or drive towards, it may not it may not evolve into that deep curiosity. And there are some people that almost eschew surface curiosity completely, and it's always about the deep thinking. And so I wouldn't say that it always evolves from surface. Sure. Into deep. Certainly it, it can. Great. Super interesting. Yeah. And I'm really glad Nick asked that question about the sequence, because I was wondering the same thing. And, uh, you know, with it as a cycle, that would make perfect sense, right? So please tell me if I understand this correctly. The openness to experience, the watching is kind of the precursor to any of this. You've got to at least be open to the possibility of wonder for wonder to even get off the ground. And we'll come on to this later, but perhaps this is part of what it means to be wonder prone, as you call mm. it, right? Mm. Then you've got to be curious, ideally deeply curious. And mm. that's like the wandering stage after the watching stage. If you then pursue that deep curiosity, you can move into absorption, this, this flow state where you're whittling the things in your experience down into those things that you can really wonder about. Then we have these two phases of awe, vastness, which you describe as wow, and accommodation as well. So let's move then into this final stage, the phase of awe. What the difference is between them? And if you could describe to us kind of where, if you like, the wonder really kicks in here, or if that's a misunderstanding, wonder is the whole kind of package of the lot. And that's, I think, again, why... I guess one of the benefits in me writing this not being an academic, I do consider myself a social scientist, but I'm not an academic. And one of the benefits I feel of not being an academic is that some of this can just be, well, what do you think? So I put these pieces together to specifically not have them be discrete. I want us to see them as a, as we say, a cycle. But absolutely, there is, if we want to look at some of the work of like Dr. Keltner, then we're getting into to awe being that moment of wonder. But I believe that it becomes too unachievable or feels unachievable to many people. They say, I don't feel awe every day. Now, I believe we can feel awe every day. But what I want people to recognize is that it is about a mindset. And so that mindset starts with openness to experience. It starts with choosing to be curious about things, deeply curious as much as you can. It's about creating the mental space and frame for absorption to occur and then getting into awe. So awe is sort of, I guess, one of the big gifts of the wonder cycle. That is where a lot of the benefit exists. And so when we look at those two phases of awe, the first being the vastness. This is where we experience something that is so vast that it makes us feel like a smaller component part of a bigger system. However, I'm cautious to say that that vastness is about perception. So yes, that vastness can be seeing the Grand Tetons for the first time or the birth of a child, but it can be the perfect fall leaf if that's what we choose it to be. If we choose to have this perspective, this lens through which we see the world, it can be in 
the quotidian as well. And then after we have that sense of wow, that vastness, then our brains actually change our schema, the building blocks of our mind changes and then forever henceforth our uh, the way we see the world is changed because of that experience. And that's why I say, again, it can be cyclical and additive because what we're doing is giving ourselves the opportunity to find wonder in the quotidian, to find awe in the quotidian. And then that is always changing our brain and how we view the world. It, it changes the lens through which we, we see the world. Now, if we have, say, the wow without the woe, one of the interesting conversations I had with an academic by the name of Lanny Sheota, I suggested to her and said, well, is that almost PTSD? Is that where we experience the wow, but we don't have the woe? We don't, we're not able to metabolize. We're not able to accommodate that experience. And she said, yeah, you're spot on. I mean, that's really potentially what PTSD is, is we're having the wow moment of awe, but unable to accommodate it. And then if we're able to accommodate it, instead of having a, a traumatic experience, what we're having is an experience that helps us maybe even have post-traumatic growth out of that awe moment. John and I are sitting here not arguing, but trying to figure out where to go next because you're just striking so many, so many interesting chords. But I just want to make a quick aside. So I'm I'm sitting here in an Airbnb in Denver at the moment. So my wife and I park hop. So we love hiking, like love getting out in the mountains. You just mentioned the Tetons. Like everything you're saying is really, really resonating with me. And so I think the next kind of tangible place for us to go is some of the how-to a little bit. We want to talk about this wonder mindset, but then also specific actions you mentioned okay sure maybe you score at a certain level on a big five openness to experience but there are things that you can do to develop more of a wonder mindset what are those things and and then we'll dig into some of the other questions so one of the biggest ways that we can start to enhance our openness our curiosity our awe is novelty so our brain really only pays attention to what what changes. It's just a very ancient mechanism in our brain goes all the way back to the dinosaurs. I like to joke that even in Jurassic Park, if if you moved very, very slow, the dinosaurs wouldn't sense you. So this is an ancient mechanism for we only notice change. And one of the challenges is that our brain is an autopilot most of the time. And so we could be experiencing, we could be in an environment where there are things to feel a sense of wonder about, but we simply don't notice them. And so So the more that we can expose ourselves to novelty, take different routes, go to different environments, then our brain becomes much more adept at noticing newness. And then at some point, we don't necessarily need to take a new route. We just see the newness that is inherent in our life. So novelty is one of the great ways. Wonder walks, so being in nature and being in natural environments triggers elements in our brain that certainly helps us experience wonder and it's just very good for us. That's another very practical way that we can experience wonder. And then I think we can find them understanding even just almost what our wonder archetype is. What is it that brings us wonder individually? Is it nature? Is it cognitive? Is it each other? And just trying to expose ourselves more to it, having those kinds of conversations, almost like a love language in a sense that we're having that conversation with someone saying, this is what brings me wonder, putting language to it and then pursuing it, which seems simple, but we don't really necessarily do that. We don't prioritize it. So I think those are just some simple ways. 
obviously also slow thought, anything that helps us, that's really important for that absorption piece. So meditation, narrative journaling, even nostalgia, other types of mixed emotions are great ways for us to practice, to create a wonder practice. So, so John's gonna gonna ask more about kind of these these how to practices, but it just occurs to me. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Rick Hansen's work, and he mentions it talks a lot about savoring. Everything you just described sounds like savoring, right? Yes. And why? Well, we know the bad stuff sticks to the brain much more easily than the good stuff. There's a lot of good stuff out there. We're just not very adept at noticing it a lot of the time. So we got our head and or, and brain into whatever it is that's going on in our lives at that moment. Absolutely. Yes, it is about savoring. And that's one of the reasons why narrative journaling is so powerful in particular for wonder, because it almost allows us to re-experience the wonder as we're journaling about it. And so that's a, a particularly powerful way to to savor and then to re-savor our, our wonder moments. There must be so many interesting connections with creativity and innovation. I imagine here, right? Because, and I, we're going to get back to this mixed emotion sort of element of wonder as well, which I think creativity and gratitude, by the way, probably have some overlap. Another one, with. yep. Yeah, so it's super interesting. But we'll, we'll come back to that. I'll let John go here. Yes. Well, I, I just want to dig a little more into these practical steps for cultivating a wonder mindset, becoming wonder prone. I love this term, wonder prone, Monica, as well. Yeah. So you've mentioned, I've, I've noticed a few down here. We've got all walks, meditation slow thinking, and narrative journaling, which you've also mentioned as a way that can help someone savor mixed emotions, as Nick said, we're going to go into mixed emotions soon. Could we just go through these in a, in a little bit of detail? So how does a person, you know, go on a good or walk? You know, what's yeah, the best way so, to do that? And let's start sorry, with that I'm, one. I also want to ask about slow thinking and narrative journaling, but slow, let's start with all walks. How do, how do you do good or walk? And I actually call it, I, I, I broaden it to a wonder walk because again, I don't, I don't want people to feel that there is some a particular outcome they need to achieve. It's really about setting a mindset that you're going to experience wonder during that. And that's what the research showed is that wonder walks are really a, a terrific example in just priming in the power of priming. You tell your brain, you're going to see something that there is a reward in seeing it. Therefore your brain commits more cognitive energy towards finding it. And then you do find it. I mean, there's obvious evidence that writing down our goals helps us achieve them. And that's one of the primary ways why. And so the research around all walks and wonder walks was that simply priming people with a one sentence prime when they went off onto their walks was enough for people to find wonder in them and then to have the concomitant benefits of wonder from those. And so I love that particular piece of research in particular because it shows they had people take selfies at the beginning of their walk and at the end of their walk. And the wonder walkers had bigger smiles at the end, which I just think is really a beautiful sort of indicative of, of the power of priming and going on this wonder walk. So what the researchers found was that the simple one sentence prime and then focusing on finding wonder and taking generally trying to take a new path when possible and having that walk be in nature. Those were really the key elements of a positive wonder walk. Does it have to be in nature? You want to wonder walk in 
it, it doesn't have to be, but the research shows that people are tend to be able to find more wonder in nature. I mean, there's evidence that people who are deprived of natural environments, you can almost go on a virtual wonder walk, even just watching drone footage of natural environments can give us some of the benefits. So it doesn't have to be in nature. Museums are great wonder bringers. I, I'm a, a big believer in museum environments. They're basically just designed to inspire wonder. So it doesn't have to be in nature but nature is definitely for the majority of people. And it goes back to just the way that our brains have formed over millennia, that that is one of the ways for us, one of the key ways for us to tap into wonder tends to be in nature. Great. Thank you. So we've got wonder walks. You mentioned slow thinking. Yeah. What do you mean by that? So slow thought is any way to start to practice a sense of presence. So that can be meditation. Often asked what kind of meditation, what style of meditation is best for finding wonder, the style that you practice the most. And there's a great book written by Daniel Goleman, who most people probably associate with EQ, but he is a huge proponent and researcher of meditation. And he says the same thing. He says that basically all meditation styles share a theme and that theme is being present and slowing the chattering mind. So any kind of meditative practice that helps us slow the chattering mind and then practices that help us connect to mixed emotions. So gratitude being one of those, nostalgia being another, and then any practice that helps us slow down our engagement with the, I guess, the noisiness of the world. And one of those being narrative journaling and certainly anything that involves storytelling. Our brains love stories, especially if the stories are about ourselves. And that's why I say it's not enough for it to be a journal entry that sometimes when we journal, it ends up being sort of just a laundry list of like what our day was. That's not sufficient enough for us to tap into wonder. It really needs to be a story about ourselves, a story about our, our wonder experience. Hi friends, Nick here with just a brief interlude to share with you an update on one of our newest partnerships with the Anti-Fragile Academy. Throughout John and I's conversations with many, if not most of our guests, one thing has been made really clear. In order for people to flourish, thrive, experience the good life, they need to develop the capacity to not only navigate and endure, but ideally grow from the bad, grow from unpleasant experiences. That's why we're thrilled to be partnering with our newest sponsor, the Anti-Fragile Academy, an organization that I co-founded with Dr. Adam Wright, Director of Mental Performance for the Washington Nationals. At the Anti-Fragile Academy, we work with adolescent athletes, executives, and educators to help them understand some of the science, not just of optimal performance, but of well-being and anti-fragility. The ability not only to endure and bounce back from unpleasantness, but to actually come back stronger, to grow from it. Between Adam and I, we've worked with Fortune 100 companies, Inc. 300 executives, Division I programs, and elite professional athletes and Olympians from all over the world. To find out more about how you can leverage anti-fragility training, check out our website at theantifragileacademy.com. Awesome. Okay, so I think that gets us into narrative journaling then and what that would involve. And so we're going to go from here into mixed emotions, I, I think that would be a good way to go, but also savoring nostalgia. So yes. do you, would you put that into narrative journaling, like rewriting about positive events in your life that you haven't maybe thought about for a while that happened in, happened in the past? 
how does that function? So I think it could be, or it can just be reflecting. But I think what's interesting about nostalgia is it doesn't necessarily have to be positive. It can just simply be reflective. It can be reflecting on periods of time. Because if we reflect on something that's negative, but at the point that we're reflecting on it, we've been able to achieve perspective about it, then we're able to see both the positive and the negative. You know, there was a piece of research done, one of my favorite little data nuggets from the book, that widows and widowers who reflected on their marriage, both the positive and and the negative aspects of their marriage were more resilient in their grief. They were able to metabolize their grief more effectively. And so this idea of being able to hold seemingly competing emotions in our head at the same time is incredibly good for us. And that's one of the things that wonder does. Wonder is not always positive. Wonder sometimes can have a terror tinge to it. It can have an element that is slightly horrific, and yet we can still find the wonder in it. And so being able to hold mixed emotions is is very powerful. It's very helpful for resiliency. It's very helpful for us to metabolize what we experience. And so having nostalgia, and I see gratitude as potentially also, there is sometimes a bit of a mixed element to gratitude in that we're thinking about people who don't have what we have or times when we didn't have what we currently do or experience the the benefit and that perspective of saying I can feel grateful even if I don't have on the surface everything that I believe I should that ability to hold those two seemingly competing ideas in our brain is very positive and being able to have that sense of nuance is one of the benefits of wonder it helps us be more tolerant of other people of other ideas so yeah I think that that's that's a, a bit of that power of mixed emotion it's it's very interesting. So a week or two ago, my wife and I watched Blast from the Past, this movie from the late nineties, Brendan Fraser, and don't know if you know it, but so so okay. So he's he spends basically I probably haven't seen life, it since the nineties, but yeah. Oh yeah, so I hadn't I hadn't either, but it was now now being sort of kind of immersed in the, the research on gratitude and benefit finding and savoring. He I forgot about this great line he has. And so just for our audience, like the quick background is he he spent his, the first 35 years of his life in a bomb shelter. Right? He thought the Cold War basically happened. And, and so he had never seen basically anything in the real world. Comes up from the bomb shelter, goes into the real world. And then he's sitting outside one afternoon, just in the rain, holding his hand out, raining down onto his hand. And he says to the other character, says, my father, who is a scientist, says that everything in life is a miracle. And until this week, I didn't really understand what he meant by that, right? And I, could, I couldn't help but think of that as you were describing wonder and, and awe walks and gratitude and savoring. And it's a perfect segue into the mixed emotion piece because I think our audience could hear all of that and easily confuse it with pretend everything's beautiful and great and good, but that's not what you're saying, that there's a lot more complexity to the emotional experience of wonder, right? Do we have that correct? Absolutely. And one of the points I make in the book is that I think happiness is overrated. I think that, you know, so much around the positive thinking movement, around abundance theory, all of this is with the goal of being happy. But I think that happiness is not a great goal for us to set for ourselves, partly because we are just so freaking lousy at knowing what makes us happy. And what we tend to do, it's called affective forecasting. We think something's going to make us happy and then we get there and we're not. 
And often we think that hedonic elements, and there's nothing wrong with hedonic happiness, it certainly is beneficial in some ways, but we tend to over-index the hedonic benefits and we chase that. And then of course, what we know about the hedonic treadmill, we're back to our hedonic baseline, which is generally also set by the age of 25. Again, it's sort of a half personality and, and half uh, nurture over time. And so if we're chasing hedonic happiness to give us sort of a long-standing sense of satisfaction, even if we go for eudaimonic happiness, it still doesn't appear to give us the quantum of benefits that, say, wonder would, that all would and elements of curiosity. And it's just not a steady state. It's not realistic for us to be always happy. How can you be happy when you look at news necessarily about a war in Ukraine? How can you be happy when you're looking at numbers of deaths during COVID? You can't, but you can be in wonder. Wonder can be a steady state. I believe that. I believe we can create a wonder mindset in which we can find wonder in everything. And I believe that that is more positive. I believe it's more achievable. And I think it has a, a greater quantum of benefits for us. So I'm a big anti-toxic positivity person. I have someone I love very much in my life who sometimes leans towards toxic positivity. And I'm always saying, let's wind that back in and let's let's find the wonder instead of the positivity. That's not realistic. Yeah. Yeah, well said. I, I, you know, I think there there's space for a both and as opposed to an either or, right? There's there's Correct. plenty to be said for benefit finding and counterfactual thinking and all those sorts of things. And at the same time, I mean, the most consistent theme, John and I have to say this literally every episode, the most consistent theme across all of our interviews is that there is an appropriate role and utility for sort of unpleasantness, right? Now, you, you've described sort of the, I, I guess, the state of wonder being one that is often filled with mixed emotions. What I'm curious about, again, no pun intended, is can wonder or maybe more specifically curiosity act as a tool or a mechanism or a pathway into mixed emotional experiences? I guess another way to say it is, seems like curiosity would help people ward off experiential avoidance, right? And, and lean into distress tolerance. Let me explore this feeling. It doesn't necessarily feel good, but let me investigate it as opposed to just outright reject it. Is there something to be said Absolutely. for that kind of mechanistically? Yep. So work by Todd Cash has found that he believes that the curiosity is a mechanism to help us manage trauma. It may even be one of the primary differences between people who experience post-traumatic stress as opposed to post-traumatic growth. And that it one of the challenges when we experience trauma, be physical trauma or emotional trauma, is that we retreat. And so in that retreating is what sometimes it is a defense mechanism, but it doesn't always help us in healing. And again, that's in both physical and psychological healing. But what curiosity does is it makes us desirous to be push ourselves out into the world, to be more open to the world and to question. And there's a, a great story as well about a it, in the book about a woman who is taken hostage in Syria. And she found that being curious in her environment actually helped her connect more deeply to these hostage takers. And in the end, it was staying curious that helped her find sort of the footholds to her, her escape. So I think that curiosity can help us in traumatic times in a very positive way. It's just it's 
feels almost counterintuitive to the way that our brains and our bodies want to react, which is to retreat. But the data would appear to support that absolutely, that being in a state of curiosity, in particular, meaningful curiosity, deep curiosity, helps us manage difficult times. So is a wonder mindset a mindset that understands, at least, you know, if you take Aaliyah's Crumb, Aaliyah Crumb's kind of conceptualization that a mindset is like a bridge between the conscious and subconscious, right? There is a conscious thought, at least, and ideally even a subconscious awareness that approaching something from a standpoint of wonder and curiosity means oftentimes being willing to engage in what is unpleasant about that thing. And something that you just said there, I think really resonated, which is you can hear curiosity or interest and think that that only means lending it or or leveraging it towards things that are pleasant. Oh, I want to know more about this thing. I want to engage in this thing more. But the mindset has to be, I'm going to approach with curiosity and wonder regardless of how it feels in that moment. Yes. And it's one of the things that when we look at surface curiosity that and the shallow curiosity that it's certainly on in social media and social networks, they know that, in fact, we like being curious about negative things. Mm-hmm. There's a piece of research in, in the book that I mentioned that people are able to flip over cards and they would either get a picture of a rock or a picture of a fairly foul shot of dog poo. And they actually loved the experience of flipping over and seeing the dog poo because it was like this <laughs> jolt of something unpleasant. We sort of almost like being curious about unpleasant things. The key is that we want to move that from shallow curiosity about unpleasant things, which is what the entirety of social media pretty much leverages. And journalism. Yeah, yeah, into deep curiosity about unpleasant things. Because Mm. in that curiosity is where we find, again, I, I keep talking about nuance, because I believe that we've created a world that is so black and white, and that We're creating children who seek the single right answer. When they get the single right answer, they feel that that's it. The conversation is closed. And then we end up having adults that don't seek any nuance, that don't see gray. Everything is black and white. And that means an incredibly intolerant society. And so the more that we can explore things that make us feel uncomfortable, in particular with other people, and explore ideas. And this is one of the things that I I feel I failed to mention and I need to. When we talk about openness to experience, What the data would show is the type of openness to experience that supports wonder is about openness to ideas in particular. It's about openness to ideas that make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. And so seeking that out and being genuinely curious is, I I think, is really, really helpful and part of that wonder cycle. Yeah, love that. Love that. Thank you. So one of the things that we, we discussed briefly, what you call in the book, the happiness trap these widespread obsessions with aiming for happiness as the highest good in life. And I was quite taken about your argument that wonder is something we could aim for as the highest good in life without the problems brought about by aiming for happiness. But wonder can nonetheless bring about much happiness in the process. So could you describe why you think wonder is something much better for us to aim for and maybe kind of not only avoids the happiness trap, but is maybe a much better resolution for it. Let's aim at that instead of happiness and we'll get to the right place without any of the problems that the happiness traps brings. 
So I think just looking at, if we just look purely at the at the benefits, now for starters, people who experience the composite elements of wonder tend to be happier. And so it is sort of like, a, I'd say like a game show, but wait, there's more, you know, there, there, there is the, the, the benefit of that. But if you just look at the quantum of benefits, it would appear that the composite elements of wonder bring us greater benefits. So it makes us more generous more humble, more tolerant. People who are higher in the composite elements of wonder uh, perform better in work and in school, they have more successful and positive relationships. I love this element around humility. Not only do we feel more humble, but our friends perceive us as more humble. They actually can see it. It's like it bubbles off of us. I think Mm -hmm. that that's incredibly impactful. Then the physiological benefits of wonder. So it appears that wonder lowers our uh, stress hormones, our cortisol levels, lowers our blood pressure, and also lowers our pro-inflammatory cytokines. So pro-inflammatory cytokines are the biological markers associated with things like heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's. And we know that the composite elements of wonder will lower those pro-inflammatory cytokines, which is incredibly beneficial. And that those pro-inflammatory cytokines, again, link with what we were talking about before, that they make us want to, to shrink from the world when we are when we feel a sense of injury. And yet curiosity and awe want to push us forward. And we there's a belief that that might be the link. That might actually be why the pro-inflammatory cytokines are lower, that it is telling telling us physiologically, oh, no, you don't need to to hide away from the world, actually get out into the world. And that's what will be helpful to you. So I, Mm -hmm. I do believe that happiness, and if we start to look, I think there's some interesting work being done by a gentleman, Shigehiro Oishi, and he looked at this idea, and it really connects to flourishing, the idea of a psychologically rich life. And he believes that that is probably the most powerful route towards happiness. And I looked at his sort of waypoints of psychological richness, and they layer almost precisely on top of wonder. And so I believe that probably this idea of psychological richness leading to happiness is probably the same idea that wonder leads us to happiness. But I think we have to start with seeking wonder and that is much more achievable. And then in the end, we probably will find some type of happiness, but probably not the type of happiness that we've been fed from Madison Avenue. And I joke about, you know, Coca-Cola being the veritable king of happiness, probably not stuff that we would get from a fizzy drink or a pair of stiletto heels or, you know, a cocktail. Pure hedonism. That kind of happiness, yeah. Yeah, I liked your footnote on Coke versus Pepsi and the arguments you had with your brother about that. Yes, oh, Um, goodness. We we, we were a Coke household. We were uh, born and raised in Atlanta, so they practically put Coca-Cola in your baby bottle there. But yeah, I'm a believer in all types of happiness having their, their role, but I believe that I truly believe that wonder can be a steady state for us if we create the mindset for it. And I'm not going to say I'm great at it. I'm still on the path, but I, I think I believe that it can be. Awesome. And I mean, something I was even more taken by in, in this section of the book on the happiness trap was that your discussion of the highest good in life, where you argue that where you look at what has been conceptualized, the highest good in life historically and how certain forms of happiness were you know proposed as the highest good in life, the distinction between eudaimonia and hedonia. And you propose that wonder is a possible candidate for being the highest good in life, the ultimate thing we should aim for. And this is particularly That's important. Bottom, for, yeah. yeah, the summon bonum. This is particularly important for debates on flourishing because flourishing is often conceptualized as or defined as the the highest good in life, the thing to which all our ends aim. You know, in the, in the work of, say, for example, Aristotle on eudaimonia, that's kind of how it's 
conceptualize the ultimate end. So could you kind of walk us through your argument for that? Sure. And maybe I see perhaps it's that wonder is the mechanism by which then we achieve flourishing. So perhaps they are they're linked. You know, I, I see wonder in many ways when I talk about a wonder mindset that it is it there is a, a very practical, active element that we take in achieving wonder and experiencing wonder. And so I think that one of the reasons why I believe that wonder is more achievable than a lot of the elements, of, a lot of the sort of the happiness paradigms that that we look at is that I've broken it down in such a way that we can make choices every day to be more open. And it can be a small choice that we can make choices every day to to be more curious. We can try to find our paired back, our, our extraneous noise in our brain and be more focused, be more absorbed. And then we might have the benefit of experiencing an awe moment. But I think that sometimes concepts like flourishing, like eudaimonia, like even um, the psychological richness feel so abstract. And my goal with writing the book is for people to see that it can be quite concrete, that it can be very practical. And I guess that's one of the reasons why I feel it's more achievable is that there are such specific steps that we can take every day to get us closer to one of those five elements of wonder. But I do see flourishing absolutely being a, a key component to it or that psychological richness. And perhaps it's simply that wonder is the lens through which we see the world. And in that lens, then we can achieve a sense of flourishing. Okay, so that, that dovetails nicely into John and I just trying to figure out which direction we want to go next. But like how you investigate wonder, how you measure it, how do you know if you're quote unquote doing it right? Right. So we've talked about like practical strategies to build it. Like, how do you know if it's working more or less? Does that make sense? What is what's the what do the academics do when they investigate wonder? But how does just the everyday listener, you know, tuning into this episode know if they're kind of on the right path, so to speak? So I I think some of it and and the point that I try to make is that some of this is we've all experienced it. We know what it sure. is, but we just don't have the language for it. So how the academics measure it, obviously, openness, again, uh, one of the big yep. five tools yep. we can measure. Curiosity, there are different tools for that. I do think that probably, I, I mean, I like the simplicity of Berline, but I think that Todd Cashin is probably one of the most advanced mechanisms, tools for measuring that. There's really- Todd, Todd's one- a friend of the show, by the way. So shout oh, okay, out to great. Todd. Um, yeah, and yeah. he was kind enough to give me an endorsement for the book. So oh, um, great. I really Good. like his, his work. Guy. Yeah, it's it's really it's some interesting stuff that he's doing. And I also like the epistemic humility of him going back and saying that first one I did, you know, sort of rubbish, but now I think I'm onto something. So I think that that's, that's clever. When we look at absorption, there's really generally one gold standard of absorption, looking at Alcatelligence analysis, and then we get into awe. And I think that there are a couple of different tools that are used. Dr. Keltner is very good, but then also Scott Barry Kaufman and David Yaden's awe scale. So those sort of the academic um, side. Personally, how do we measure it? Well, I think that simply the more that we find that aha moment, that moment that helps us, I think that internally we sense when we have that whoa, when we don't just have the wow, we have the whoa. So we sense that when our brain is changing based on the way that we experience the world. So I think that the way that we'll know that we're that we can start to measure it in our own life 
I mean, one of the ways is simply to track it, right, through narrative journaling. But if we were to experience the woe and then find that it's easier for us to be open, that the things that felt difficult before that are part of that wonder cycle become easier, feel more fluid to us, then that is just a mechanism for measuring it. But I guess in some ways, I don't necessarily want people to feel that they have to measure it. I want people to... To, I want people to choose to do this because it's what makes them feel good. And then in the end, it becomes easier and easier. And then we feel better and better over time. Okay. It seems that, so last week or two as well, you know, there was hail in Los Angeles. I lived in LA for 12 years and they're still deal- dealing with all sorts of crazy stuff. But I've, I've watched a particular video in Pasadena, an elementary school where the kids were running outside and just playing in it and just losing their minds, right? Because they had just never seen anything like that. It seems to me that like maybe a pretty good sort of simplistic marker for am I experiencing wonder is like, am I being childlike a little bit, right? Am I seeing that newness here? Just watch your kids and just see how they interact with it. The beginner's mind. I mean, thank you so much for for triggering that in my head because absolutely, you know, to, to I love uh, Rilke's statement about just approach everything like a beginner, always be beginning. I mean, that's a great sort of mantra if we were to have one is just to always try to hold our world with the sense of that playfulness. And again, that gets into and build and what's one of the key ways we learn those skills is through play. I think that we're really eradicating play out of our life. Another way that we haven't mentioned that I've just thought about daydreaming. I mean, daydreaming is a great mm. way, not the perseveration, the, the, the negative rumination, but the, the real, you know, thinking, casting ourselves forward in positive ways. Daydreaming is an incredibly positive way to to build a wonder mindset. And we're really driving that out of children, the idea of play as a mechanism to learn that daydreaming is positive. So it starts there. And the more that as adults, we can reflect back on that. Absolutely. I think that that is a key way to know whether you're sort of in the wonder mindset is, does it feel playful? Do you feel like you're seeing with the eyes of a beginner? Yeah, it's it's worth mentioning, too, because we're always doing right. And you've referenced this as, as well earlier in the conversation. We're very rarely, at least sort of in the modern, especially Western world, constantly hooked in, connected. We're constantly doing, not just being right. And if you want that daydreaming or that default mode activity, you you've essentially you got to be bored a little bit. You got to engage in habitual things that allow your mind to just go, which is another nice connection to that mixed emotion or that willingness to experience unpleasantness. Absolutely. And I I mean, I make the point, I, I joke that we talk about twiddling our thumbs, but that's almost like anachronistic now. No one twiddles their thumbs. Like We employ them quite deftly on our phones. And yeah. because of that now, we're not bored anymore. We're never bored. I, I think back to, you know, when you would wait for your dinner companion and sit at the table and just people watch. We don't do that anymore. We compl- always go right into our phones. And trust me, I am the I'm the worst at this. I love my phone. And I think that the more that we can disconnect from this constant stream of entertainment and allow ourselves to feel that sort of awkward itch that crawls up our back and go, no, I'm just going to sit in the boredom and let my brain explore. I think that that is a, a really positive, another positive way that we can slow down our brains and allow ourselves to seem to observe more. Because I believe that that we have just, we've lost seeing 
truly seeing what wonder there is to experience because we just move too quickly and we have too much that engages us immediately that we shut down the opportunity for wonder on on a really regular basis. Yeah, well said. Amazing. So we've got so many possible answers I can imagine you might give to this. I'm I'm excited to see which what you might say. We have this signature question we should call the flourishing question. What's the one lesson on flourishing you want our listeners to walk away with? And what might be a practical step to putting that lesson into action? So I would say this, but it would be to choose a, a wonder mindset, really. It means finding a way to connect with wonder every day in the quotidian, in the most simple elements of our life. And really, again, going back to the basis of the the definition of flourishing, it means it's finding it in our relationships. It's finding it with the way in which we engage with the world. It's finding it in the meaning and purpose that we find in our life. And so really want looking at the world through a wonder lens, whatever that means for you, and then finding that meaning. And I guess the practical way to put that in action is to just practice it, you know, make it a habit. Anything that we practice, it's the the idea that, you know, the neurons that fire together, wire together. The more that we practice it, the more that our brain will create that neural pathway, and then it will become a positive behavioral track or behavioral rut that we are, then our brains will always fall into that seeing the wonder. And so I guess that that to me is is the best way to flourish, is to, to live in to create and to choose a wonder mindset. And I do believe it's a choice that we can make every day, every day when we wake up. That's great. Great. Monica, this, this has really been terrific coming in, just kind of doing some of the research, you know, for the conversation, I had a sense that there would just be a lot of interesting connected threads, sort of this web, right. That wonder, I think weaves to all these other concepts that we've explored a little bit today. And that certainly has been the case. So really, really enjoyable conversation and just deeply appreciative of, of your work and the time. Thank you guys so much. The time flew by and it was just a delight to nerd out and, and talk about it. And thank you for, for offering me the opportunity. Thank you, Monica. Where can people find out about you and your work? Yep. So you can find out more about me at monica-parker.com. And the book is called The Power of Wonder. And you can find it anywhere that books are sold. So I love to continue the conversation with anybody who reads the book. You can also find me on social at Monica C. Parker. So look forward to hearing what people say. Great. We'll get all of that in our show notes as well. And uh, best of luck with the uh, continued success of the book. Thank you guys so, so much. I really appreciate it. You bet. Yep. Take care. Bye-bye. Huge thanks to all of you for listening to today's show. If you like what you heard, please share it with friends, family, colleagues, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Uh, You can also find us on all social media platforms. Uh, We've got our own YouTube channel, and you can check out our website at flourishfmpodcast.com. We'd also love to hear from you. There's a survey in the show notes you can complete where you can complete any suggestions on guests you'd like to hear us interview or particular topics or themes you'd like to hear us talk about we'd love to hear your feedback on that so your feedback would be greatly appreciated if you could fill out that form until next time thank you very much for joining us today and keep putting in the work